Thanks to the worship team. So a very exciting day for us today. Um, like we've been saying, it's our baptism Sunday, also a children's dedication. And uh, the wonderful thing is, um, as we continue through Colossians, is that our next portion of Scripture uh, teaches on baptism. Now, if you think about it, what is actually the deal with baptism? I mean, it, it, if you really think about it, it's an odd thing that we as Christians do. You know, we, we go and we dunk someone underwater, and then when we pull them back up, everyone cheers. You know, like, what is the deal with that? If, if you didn't know what was going on, you would think that we maybe are a support group for aquaphobia or, or something like that, or, or, you know, some weird religious cult or something to that effect. And so why do we do it? Well, firstly, we are being obedient to our Lord and Savior. He asked us to observe two sacraments, the Lord's Supper, which we will observe next, next Sunday, and baptism. So we're being obedient to Him. The second reason why we do baptism in particular is because of what it represents, because of what it symbolizes. And those are important words to mark. Baptism is symbolic. In and of itself, it has no power. Baptism does not save you. Jesus saves you. But rather, it confirms that you have been saved, that you have been born again. And so what I want us to do before we head down to the beach is look at what baptism symbolizes and why it's so important. What does it symbolize and why is it so important? And we can say it neatly like this, baptism represents the victory that Jesus accomplished for us. Baptism represents, it's symbolic of the victory that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Jesus was in a battle for us that he secured for us by defeating sin, death, and the devil, and setting us free from this fallen world that we're living in. And we respond to this. We respond by faith to who he is, what he did, and that faith is symbolized in baptism or immersion in water. So won't you please read our text with me this morning from Colossians 2, uh, verses 8 to 15. You can grab a Bible in your chair pocket in front of you or jump onto your Bible app. But like we always say, I want you to see it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. So here we go. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Paul continues and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been, here we go, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities 
and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So here we go, four quick points on the victory that baptism represents for us. It represents, number one, you can see this on the flip side of your bulletin too, our victory over deceptive doctrine, number two, indwelling sin, number three, religious debt, and then finally, the devil and his demons. So here we go. Baptism represents our victory over point number one, deceptive doctrine. So, so here's how I kind of see it uh, panning out or playing out in today's culture. Deceptive doctrine will either disguise itself as a 99% truth, which by the way is still a lie, or deceptive uh, doctrine will go the way of our current culture that says, listen, listen, there, there's no such thing as absolute truth. We just have to accept each other and tolerate all of each other's views, opinions, and beliefs, ironically, except for Christianity, our views and our truth. And so most uh, offshoots of, of Christianity, if I could put it this way, that way, most offshoots of Christianity, they, they take the 99% uh, strategy uh, where they say, listen, listen, no, we're all about Jesus. You know, come in, come in, you're welcome. We're all about Jesus. We're all about welcoming Jesus. And then they deceptively worship other things as well. They deceptively say, yes, it's Jesus, but it's also this. Yes, it's Jesus, but it's also doing all of these things. They have a Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus this equals salvation. Jesus plus the worship of that equals your salvation. Culture today, like I said last week, will make us feel bad. Culture will make us feel bad. It'll make us feel insensitive for what we believe. How can you guys, you guys call yourselves loving, how can you take such a hard line on homosexuality or sex before marriage or, or that there's only one way to God and that's through Jesus? How can you be so insensitive? And so we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful that we're not deceived or indoctrinated by these false theologies or that we're not manipulated by them. Paul says it like this, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive, literally carries you off like a slave, by philosophy and empty deceit. To which we might go, well, wait a minute, Paul. I mean, not all, not all philosophy is, is deceptive and bad. I mean, Christianity, we, we have a certain philosophy to us and about us. And so not every thought out there, not every, not every mindset out there is empty, meaning void or, or pointless. And so what could Paul mean? Well, he clarifies for us. He says, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Wow. I was expecting a bullet. And this is... <laughs> If the philosophy, what is, here's what he's saying, if the philosophy is according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of this world, then he's saying, then it's, it's deceptive because it's, it's empty. Human tradition refers to what has been passed down throughout the ages. What has simply become so a part of our, our culture? This was probably aimed at the Jewish false teachers who were trying to add all of their Jewish cultures and their, their, their mosaic law rituals on top of the Colossian faith. Basically, they were saying, listen, listen, this is what we've always done. 
This is what we've always believed. This is what we will always do to show that we are the people of God to earn our favor and our blessings before God. And so we need to be wise. We need to be discerning about what we do in culture that is equated with our Christian beliefs. What has simply been passed down, what has simply been passed along that, that is now just simply accepted as part of the church, as part of church practices, as part of our Christian faith, as part of our own personal lives that, not, that is not necessarily biblical. So th- we can say that these, these, are, these are man-centric practices. These are man-centric philosophies as opposed to Christ or, or Christocentric practices. Elemental spirits of the world can mean two things. Firstly, it can refer to, to very, very simple things, like the, the basic elements or rudimentary, uh, rudimentary knowledge of this world. It, it, it's very, uh, uh, it doesn't have any depth or, or much significance to it. But secondly, and this is probably a little bit more accurate and influential, and that is the influence of the devil on the knowledge and wisdom in the world. If this is the source of the particular philosophy or wisdom that we are adopting, Paul says it will capture you. It will enslave you. It will carry you away as a slave. It will mislead us because it's void and it's, it's empty. It's devoid of truth. And so now look at how he contrasts this. And this is what is represented by baptism. Notice how often he uses the word fullness or filled in verses 9 to 10. He says this, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So two big phrases that that really punt who Jesus is. He says the fullness of God is in him. It's even encapsulated in his bodily form, which the Gnostics were saying, no, 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 if anything is in, in the flesh, if anything is in bodily form, it, it's, it's evil. And Paul says, no, even Jesus, in his bodily form, his human form, he is the fullness of God. And secondly, because he is the fullness of God, he has authority, he says, over all things, authority and rule over all things, including this very humanistic thought and these spiritually influenced thoughts and mindsets in the world. And then he brings in the big kicker. He says this, and you, you Colossian believers, and you sunrise believers, you have been filled in him. Another way of saying it is, you are complete in Jesus. Jesus is enough. Warren Wearsby, a great scholar, he explains it like this. He says, when a person is born again, which is represented by baptism, when a person is born again into the family of God, he is born complete in Christ. His spiritual growth is not by addition, but by nutrition. In other words, we're gonna grow up now into this fullness. He says he grows from the inside out. Nothing needs to be added to Christ because he already is the very fullness of God. Listen to this. As a believer draws on Christ's fullness, He is filled unto all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19. What more does he need? When you are born again, you are born into the fullness of Jesus. 
And as we journey now through this life, we, are, we begin to experientially grow into this fullness of Christ. And so baptism says you have died. You have died to the deception and the captivity of humanistic thought and other evil influenced thoughts, and you are raised to full life in Jesus. So the major implication, Sunrise, only Jesus can and only He will complete you. If you place your hope or your philosophy in any any other way of life, you will be captured by it, and it will disappoint you. Because here's the thing, you were designed by Jesus for Jesus, and therefore He can only complete you. He is the only one who will satisfy you, nothing else. Baptism declares, baptism says, I am fulfilled and filled by Jesus and Jesus alone. The next thing baptism represents is victory over indwelling sin, point number two. So Paul kind of shifts gears now from uh, external influences now to an internal influence. And so not only has indwelling sin misled us and deceived us, but it has separated us from God himself. And so all sorts of religions and cults throughout the centuries, they've been trying, uh, attempting to deal with this issue of reconciliation with God. But, But all of their practices and in all of their beliefs, they haven't been able to eradicate the central problem, this intrinsic issue of indwelling sin. That's what makes the gospel, that's what makes the gospel such incredibly good news because Jesus has. Look at verse 11. It says, in him, in Jesus also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, that's the sinful nature, this indwelling sin, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So physical circumcision was an old covenant, an Old Testament practice uh, that kind of demonstrated, symbolized that you were set apart as the people of God. But the problem is that it was just that. It was just a symbol. It couldn't deal with this internal problem of sin. I mean, think about it. How can a physical procedure deal with an intrinsic spiritual issue? That's why Paul says, in fact, he says, you were dead You're spiritually dead in your sins and your trespass. He says, uh, in the uncircumcision of the flesh, meaning in this context, this inherent sinful nature. And so what we need, what we needed is a miracle. Because how on earth are you and I, how how can we deal with an internal spiritual issue? Again, many religions, many philosophies, they've, they've tried and they've all failed. That's why Paul contrasts this with a very different type of circumcision. He says, we received a spiritual circumcision. He says, a circumcision without hands, a circumcision of Christ. And in it, our sinful nature was cut away. And instead of being dead to God, we are now very much alive to God. 
It says, in fact, God did it. Paul says, it was a powerful working of God who made both Jesus alive after the cross and raised us to new life in him. And the sign, the sign that this has happened, that represents that we have experienced new birth, that we have experienced regeneration of our hearts and our souls, is baptism in water. Put this little definition on the screen for you. It says, Christian baptism is immersion in water as commanded by Christ, by which one, after confessing his or her sins and professing his or her faith in Christ, having been born again by the Holy Spirit to a new life, that's why it's a miracle, identifies, the next thing we do, identifies publicly with the fellowship of Christ and the church. Now, let me quickly add in here why we don't do baby baptisms. Because listen to what Paul is saying, and he says this, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Do you see that? Our path in being born again is faith. So baptism is symbolic of you being born again, and we're born again by faith. And so notice he says, you, you were raised with him through faith. So whose faith is it? It's not your parents' faith on behalf of you, or your pope's faith on behalf of you, or your priest's faith on behalf of you. No, he says it's yours. And so we conclude then that we have to be of a certain cognitive level or age where we can simply understand who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross for us so that God willing and by his grace we might believe on him as our Lord and Savior. So until then, that's why we do baby or children dedications. And again, a dedication is mainly aimed at the parent or the parents who are dedicating themselves to, to raise their children in a godly manner to constantly point their children towards Jesus and remind them of what Jesus did for them on the cross so that at a God-appointed time, God, oh, God willingly, He opens their eyes to truly see who Jesus is and what He did. They can then believe in Him as their Lord and Savior and then be baptized. Now, before you send me a flood of emails or get really angry with me, uh, because you were baptized as a baby, let me just say this. If you believe your baby baptism or your confirmation when you were a child symbolizes your faith now in Jesus, and you have a clear conscience, then that's fine. Right, I'll say it again. If you were baptized or confirmed or whatever your church tradition did, and you believe Subsequently, you, you receive true saving faith in Jesus and you believe that that symbolizes your faith now in Jesus and you have a clear conscience and that's fine. But if you're sitting there and you're going, I don't know, Jason. I, I kind of feel like the decision was taken from me and, and now that I can decide, now that I fully understand the gospel and I fully understand who I am in Christ because of what he did for me, maybe now I should get baptized. And that's wonderful. You're most welcome to come and speak to me about that afterwards. My biggest issue though, my biggest issue 
is are you born again? That's what I want to know. Have you truly experienced this, this inner miracle, this, the inner miraculous work of God in your heart, in your soul? Have you experienced the cutting away of your sinful nature and the, the awakening of your soul before God Almighty as your heavenly Father because of what Jesus did for you? His death and resurrection on your behalf. That would be an incredible privilege to speak to you about and pray with you about. So baptism represents your victory over deceptive doctrine, indwelling sin, and now, number three, over the debt of religion. The debt of religion. Now, I mean, debt is just a horrible thing in the first place, right? It's, it's like this thing that just constantly hangs over you. It's like this weight on your shoulders. And, and sometimes it's unavoidable. You know, if you want to buy a car, you want to buy a house, you have to get into a certain amount of debt. You know, but as Christians, we're called to be wise stewards of our finances, so we don't want to get into too much debt. We want to be able to pay it off. But there's nothing worse, nothing worse than spiritual debt before God falling way short before God. And legalistic religion will come in and say, this is one of the false te- uh, teachings that, will infiltra- that was infiltrating the church in Colossus. They'll come in and say, now listen, listen guys, you can't be so naive. You think that, Je- that faith in Jesus alone is gonna make you right with God? No, the, the world doesn't work like that. You gotta earn it. You want that promotion at work? You've got to work for it. You've got to, you've got to show that, that you deserve it. You've got to earn it. That, that's how the world works. You see, legalistic religion is just another example of this humanistic philosophy, this humani- humanistic thought that is, that is infiltrating the, the church, that is infiltrating our minds. And Paul says, no, it will enslave you. And it will, in, it will enslave you in one of two main ways. One, it'll cause you to wonder if your good is ever good enough. Because essentially, legalistic religion says you have to obey a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. In fact, it'll come to you and it'll say, you have to constantly and consistently do all of these things. You have to constantly and consistently not do all of these things to earn God's favor. To which I then say, okay, well, what if you mess up? What if you mess up just once? What happens? Do you kind of start from zero all over again? Or is there something extra then that we have to do to get back to the place where we were at? And then thirdly, who does the quality control? I mean, how do you know that that your good is, is of the right standard in order to appease God? And so can you see how it takes you captive, how it enslaves you? Because you'll constantly be asking yourself the question, how do I know if I've done enough and well enough to be good before God? How do I know if I've done enough and well enough to earn His favor, to earn His forgiveness? The other way legalistic religion will enslave you is through pride. This is when you say, I have arrived. I am good enough. I'm not, a, I'm not a sinner like the rest of these people. I'm not in debt before God. Look at all the things that I do. Look at all the, the bad things that I, that I don't do. And what we do here is we compare ourselves horizontally. And whenever you compare yourselves horizontally, you'll always find someone that you think you're better than. What we should be doing is comparing ourselves vertically with God Almighty Himself. And when we do that, 
we see that we fail miserably, that we are in major sinful debt before him. And so in the first scenario, religion becomes this taskmaster, this slave driver that's constantly whipping us, saying you're not good enough, constantly condemning us. In the second scenario, we use religion to put ourselves on a pedestal to go, look how good I am. Look at all the good I'm doing. Look at all the bad I'm not doing. In fact, you go, God, do you see that? So therefore, you owe me. I deserve because of what I have done. So God, you deserve. You need to bless me. But both religious mindsets deceive us from this amazing good news of the gospel, which is this. Look from verse 13 again. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here's how. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is how he did it. He, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's why I asked the worship team to, for us to sing that song. He nailed it to the cross. Not only did Jesus nail our sin to the cross, but he also nailed the legal demands of his holy law, which is impossible to keep. But then you think, well, if it's impossible to keep, why did he give us the law? Three quick reasons. To show how incredibly holy he is. To show how incredibly high his righteous standards are. And number two, to show that how incredibly sinful we are. And that it's impossible for us to reach his standards. We will always be in debt towards him and to him. And then lastly, to show, to emphasize that we need a savior. And the only person who can save us is Jesus because he's the only one who could perfectly live out God's law on our behalf. It takes God to live out his own standards. So baptism represents our freedom paid for by Jesus for trying to earn our favor before God, trying to earn our forgiveness before him. And so lastly, baptism represents victory over the devil and his demons. Now just a little disclaimer here. This deserves an entire sermon or at least an entire series, but I'm just gonna give you the broad strokes, which is what Paul does here. Our last verse, verse 15, goes like this. He says, he, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's another way of saying the devil and his crew. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So firstly, he says, Jesus disarmed the devil. You disarm someone by taking away their weapon, by taking away their power. And so the devil no longer has decisive power over us. Remember earlier in chapter one of Colossians, uh, Paul says that we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He says, we have a new ruler. And this new ruler even rules over the old ruler. Jesus now has decisive power over you, not the devil. Secondly, he says, Jesus shamed the devil on the cross, which is so ironic because the cross was the most humiliating and shameful way to die. You were literally exposed to everyone who was looking on you, 
to die a slow, torturous, painful death. Yet, somehow in God's sovereign power, ability, and wisdom, he uses the cross to destroy the devil. So the cross will always be a reminder to the devil of his defeat. And the cross will always be a reminder to us of our victory that Jesus purchased for us. Which then leads to Jesus' triumph. The word triumph there refers to, this, uh, triumph, the, to the triumphant processions of the Roman generals who would return victorious from, from uh, battles and wars. They would return and, and the, cities, uh, the city would be lined with people cheering and, and championing him on, their, their victorious general. But the defeated king would also be paraded. And he'd usually be in the front of the parade for his shame. And so in a similar way, Jesus' ascension into heaven was a triumphant parade over sin, death, and the devil. And his ultimate victory parade will be when he returns at the end of the age, when he finally and fully puts the devil and his whole crew into that fiery lake. So quick question. What do we do then with the devil between now and then? The devil's been given a certain amount of of freedom until his sentence is fully applied to him. So what do we do with the devil when he comes with his deception and when he comes with his temptation? Eight quick bullet points. Go like this. Remind him of the truth. Show him, point him to the cross. You're defeated, buddy, and I'm victorious because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Number two. Expect trials and temptations. Even though he's defeated, he will try and deceive you into thinking that he's not and that you're not free. Number three, put on the whole armor of God and wield the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the way that, G, that Jesus dealt with the devil in the desert for 40 days. He wielded God's Word at him. Number four, hate evil. Hate it. As Christians, we're called to love, but we're also called to hate. Hate the right thing, and that is hate evil. Romans 12 verse nine says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Notice what Paul says here. Instead of just trying to fight off evil the whole time, he says you've got to fight it off by replacing it. Replace it. Let your love be genuine. Hold fast rather to what is good. That's how you displace evil. Number five, pray for escape from evil. Part of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray that every morning. Pray the Lord's Prayer every morning. Number seven, overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. Again, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Replace it. Then finally, resist evil. He has a promise from Scripture. James 4 verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him with this. Resist him through prayer. Resist him through godly fellowship. And the reason why we can do those eight things, the only reason why we can do them is because our great King Jesus slayed the devil on the cross and we'll finally put him away at his triumphant return.
And the thing that's going to remind the devil of his defeat is your baptism. He's going to look at that and he's going to be reminded of what happened on that cross. He's going to be reminded that you are no longer part of his kingdom, no longer under his reign or his rule, but you have been transferred to a new kingdom under King Jesus who now reigns over you. You're part of his kingdom, his dominion. Four concluding exhortations why baptism is important if you haven't been baptized or you're thinking about it. Number one, baptism is important in your relationship to Jesus. Because it says, Jesus, I see you. I see what you did for me. I believe in you. I believe in what you did for me, what you went through for me on the cross, that I might be forgiven and that I might become a child of God. Number two, your baptism is important to us. It's important to the church. It's so encouraging to see you boldly declaring your faith. It spurs the rest of us on to be obedient to the Lord in everything that we do. Number three, your baptism is important to those outside of the church. It can be a powerful, powerful witness to those who don't know Jesus. Your baptism, they'll think you're either crazy or you're fully convinced. But either way, it'll make an impact. A crazy nut job, oh, wow, you just, you're just really convinced about what you believe. Especially if those who know you, see you living in the victory that Jesus accomplished for you on the cross, if they see that, they see the change in you, there'll be a great, great impact in their lives. And finally, your baptism matters to you. It matters to you because it represents in your heart of hearts a declaration that Jesus has won the war for you, that he died for you, that he rose for you, that you might be forgiven and that he will come back for you. It declares that in the meantime, you get to live for him. You get to live for his glory and that you will be with him one day in glory. It's a public declaration that you can always look back on for comfort and for peace because it declares the war is won and now you are one with your Lord and Savior. He has won the battle and you are now one with him. Let that bring you joy. Let that bring you peace and comfort. Your baptism represents your ultimate victory in life. No matter what happens down here in the meantime, we will be with him in glory. Amen. We're gonna pray, and then once I've prayed, I'm gonna ask you, please, if you would uh, jump into your cars and uh, make your way down to Smith's Cove so that we can celebrate this incredible uh, baptism that we're gonna whip, uh, witness, as well as a, a children dedication. And uh, there will be refreshments down there, so don't worry, uh, you can have some eats and some cool lemonade down there, but it'd just be an absolute privilege 
as, the, as a faith family to celebrate this, this moment. So Father, thank you. Thank you that your, that your word went forth and I trust in your promises, in your word, that you will use your word as it goes forth to accomplish your purposes. And so Jesus, we look to you right now and we thank you so much for what you went through on the cross for us. And Jesus, we take a step of obedience now as we head down to, to Smith's Cove to witness a baptism, a declaration of who you are, Jesus, and what you accomplished on that cross. I pray right now that there would be people on that beach that would see this, that would witness this, that you would use it mightily to speak to them. Use it mightily in our lives. Would you, would you use it to spur us onto to obedient boldness to live for you in the places and the spaces where you have put us. I pray for those who, who know you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior and haven't been baptized yet, that you would encourage them also to make this public declaration. I pray for those who might be here, Jesus, who don't know you at all. I pray you would open their eyes to see how magnificent you are, how gracious you are, and what you did on the cross for them. Would you give them faith, eyes to see, faith to believe, to become a son or daughter of yours, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.